Good morning. Uh, if you'd please join me in your pew Bibles on page 1219. Our text for today is Revelation 2, 18 through 29. This is God's word to us this morning. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who, who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we did it. This is the final church in our seven sermon, well, our seven church sermon series. And this week is actually a little bit different because we have only one church to do. And so hopefully, as we explore through Thyatira, I'm hoping we can slow down and dive a little deeper. But the thing I'd like us to take away that this text shows very clearly is that we have a God who holds fast to his church and whose church holds fast to him because of who he is. And so a couple things before we jump into the text. Our text today is a bit like our text last week when we explored Pergamum. Our text draws off of Jewish history, 
And we see that in the mention of Jezebel. And so we will be exploring backwards into the church in First and Second Kings, where God's people are uh, discussed, that history, that Jewish history. And so what we're going to see is a history of God's people in the past, a present application of the history which has happened in the church of Thyatira, and then we will draw off of that to the church today. And we'll see that uh, I have uh, friends who are old earthers and they believe in evolution. And the, the thing is, I always joke with them that even if man has evolved, our hearts have not. And so the sins of the past often represent or reoccur in the present and they will again in the church to come. And that's what we see in this text, which draws off of the past. And there's comfort too, because as we see in this church of Thyatira, we see that Jesus, who has started a work in these Christians, he will bring it to completion, even as it seems that some in this church are straying. He will bring them to salvation because of who he is. He has saved and chosen them even before they chose him. And the sermon here shows that that repetition of the idolatry is nothing to be scared of or to overly fear, but rather it is a problem of the past which often reoccurs in the present, and yet God keeps those who are his. And so let's jump into the text, and we're going to do something we've done before, which is explore how Jesus comes to this specific church, this church of Thyatira. And he comes in this description with eyes like flames of fire and feet like burnished bronze. I want you to take a moment and think, what do you feel like that means? What does it inspire? What kind of imagery or how would you describe that? Eyes like fire. It should bring to mind this idea that these eyes are different than any other. See, our eyes rely on light, right? We cannot see unless external light is provided. Yet these eyes of fire have the power to search without any other external help. And we see later on this, this explained further as, as it says, I am he who searches mind and heart. That's what these eyes of fire to this church speak. That the God they serve sees the very heart and the intentions and the thoughts of their deeds. You know, I've been here now about nine weeks, and I've been asked several times, you know, how's it going? And then I often hear this, you know, I could never do what you do. I could never go up there and preach. I could never speak on that podium behind that pulpit. And I'll be honest, the first time it was scary. You guys are great, but as I look out here on all these pieces, 
it's a, it's, it was a scary sight. You guys had scary faces. Take that, <laughs> take that as you will. But as I recall on my journey to becoming more and more a pastor, I'll tell you, the fear of the faces of those looking at me has changed, and it changed probably by the first sermon here and honestly the second sermon I gave. No longer did I fear people who could see only the external facade that I give, the amount of practice I can give in my sermons. No, I fear preaching God's word far more, far, far more. Because when I stand up here and I preach God's word, this image right here of the eyes that can see heart and mind, you know the cliche piece of advice, if you're scared of public speaking, imagine everyone else in their underwear, that sight of vulnerability. When I stand up here and I preach and I go into God's word, I think often about how God has seen every bit of preparation, every choice of words I put into these sermons, and he sees all the way down to the deepest part of me, the very core. And the human heart and the human eyes, we barely see our own heart. We barely understand our own thoughts. And so this God of all-seeing, of omniscience, comes to the church of Thyatira, which is struggling with idolatry. And he comes with feet of burnished bronze. I don't know how that image strikes you, those feet of burnished bronze, but we actually do know a bit of how it would have struck Thyatira. See, burnished bronze in that day would have actually been the hardest metal. Even though an iron scepter is meant a text, at this time, iron would have been of soft iron and burnished and bronze would have been the hardest metal. And so this church in Thyatira sees a, a, a god of eyes of fire and burnished bronze, and it would have struck them doubly as relevant. For though we know very little about Thyatira, because it was a city of, as one historian calls it, ill repute of, of nothingness, uh, we do know these few things. We know, one, that it was an army garrison place where an army stayed. We also know that it had something of a manufacturing uh, economy, that guilds would have been a, a common thing. And we actually have coins from Thyatira, copper coins which depict armor being made for the goddess of war, Athena. And so this army garrison would have had copper metallurgy manufacturing. And so when we see this god with eyes of fire and burnished bronze, for those in Thyatira used to this, they would, they would see and know this image of this is a god who sees, who refines, who knows the quality of our actions and what we do. And this is a god whose feet are strong enough to do something about it. It's a scary sight. It's a scary and intimidating God. Except for us, 
who are his, except for this church who is his that he's speaking to. Because there's nothing to fear about a God who has seen you at your worst and still loved you. That's the comfort which we should find in this text. That we can pass to a God who holds fast to us because he has seen us at our worst. And so this God of eyes of fire and feet of bronze comes to a church which is struggling with idolatry. And this is what the text says. Verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, that your latter works are actually exceeding your first. And yet you tolerate this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. It's an interesting callback. Why Jesus chooses to implant Jewish history in a Greek church. And it's because those hearing it, those Jews in this church, would have carried just hearing the name Jezebel would have carried all the weight of their history. So we're going to go into it and we're going to explore it a little bit. But I want you to imagine first that this is a church with Jews and Greeks. The New Testament is full of letters for churches struggling with the fact that Jews have been called to, to be Christians and Gentiles have been called to be Christians. And now what does that look like? So the Jews would have known this history, and the Greeks would have had to learn it. But what is this history? Why does Jesus call this woman Jezebel? In 1 and 2 Kings, we get a few chapters of Jezebel, and I'm going to summarize them real quick. When Judah and Israel split, we have about 80 years that go by, and about seven rulers before King Ahab comes to power in Israel. And then Ahab marries this woman, Jezebel, who is a foreign woman. She's not Jewish, and she comes in, and then Ahab starts to worship her gods. And she begins to establish houses of worship for Baal. And she begins to persecute God's prophets. And then we get this story of Elijah who comes forward to to Ahab, king of Ahab. And he says, because you have abandoned God, it will not rain on this land until I say so, until God's prophet says so. And what's interesting is this is actually a tongue and cheek slant against the, the god Baal. See, Baal was was associated with storm and with rain and with fertility. And so for a true prophet of God to say, it's not going to rain unless God says so, it's a direct challenge to the false God which, which Jezebel and Ahab had established. And three years go by, and Jezebel persecutes all the prophets, and we get this story of one man who saves a hundred by hiding them in a cave, yet he fears for his life because Jezebel will try and kill him. And after three years of no rain, 
Ahab goes to Ahab, and, and we have this conversation. Ahab saw Elijah, and Ahab says to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? It's interesting. The very man who had turned away from God calls God's prophet the troubler. And Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. And therefore, now therefore, send and gather to all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And 450 prophets and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. We see that Jezebel had established 850 false prophets, false teachers. And she more than encouraged them, she funded them out of her own money. And so Elijah calls them to a challenge where we will see, you know, is, is, is Israel going to follow the true God or this false one? Elijah even says it. He says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And then we get this story, which I'm sure you all know, of the two altars and the prophets who plea for their God to prove himself, and he never does. And then God proves himself and burns up even the stones of the altar which Elijah makes. But we get one more point from this story. He proves himself. The story goes on, and we often miss this last little section. Ahab goes home and tells Jezebel all of what has happened, how God proved himself, and Baal is proven false on the mountain. And he tells this all to Jezebel, and Jezebel says, send this message to Elijah. So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them who's died by this time tomorrow. No repentance. In fact, anger. And she doubles down on the lie which is her false worship. And then we get one last remarkable thing in this story, which all of, would have been, just mentioning Jezebel, all of this would have been implanted in the mind of Thyatira. Verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 18. God says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed, and every mouth that has not kissed Baal. I say that story because that's the mind, that's the history which the Jews in Thyatira would have immediately recalled by the designation, the condemnation of this woman who is teaching in their city. And God, Jesus calls him her Jezebel. There's a note um, that, that her lie and her evil 
and her falsity will never be at peace. And so this history is now being repeated in Thyatira. And we see it even in how Jesus refers to her. This woman who calls herself a prophetess. You know, Jezebel was a foreigner who took the place of a ruler of God's people. And we see this woman who's no prophet of God calling herself a prophet. And teaching and seducing the servants to practice and to compromise with sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols. You know, in the present day of Thyatira, this is what most commentators believe was likely happening, although we don't have it clearly articulated in the text, which is why Jezebel and the history is so important. But this is likely what was happening. See, in Thyatira, in the manufacturing world, like what happened is if you had a craft or a work that you did, then you got together with others. And what you would do is you would get together, you'd form a community, it's basically a union, and you would worship the God of your craft, often with all the pagan practices that would go along with that. And that was what you did. That was likely what was happening in Thyatira. And it's quite likely that what Jezebel was teaching was some form of compromise where Christians could participate in those for their business sense, for economic success, for economic necessity. And it's quite likely that she more than taught that, but she suggested that it was a good thing. Just like Jezebel She encourages it and facilitates it. And yet, today, we can have similar things. Similar temptation to bring in idols and to try and serve both God and this idol. To limp between two options. I can think of how Christianity, especially in America, has been associated with politics as if any political party stands truly for Christ. I can see it in our entertainment as we compromise our own sexual morality for something that is entertaining. Or that we adopt the beliefs of the world That as long as it feels good or harms no one, then that is an acceptable practice. I can see it in sermons and illustrations of self-empowerment, where false teachers today are pushing forward prosperity gospels, that you can do anything. Do you have it in you? Which is not what our gospel tells us. And verse 21 says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. You know, none of us can see like Jesus can. None of us can 
say we have eyes that see the heart of a person. None of us can see the intentions of their mind. And yet all of us can discern things through time. We can see the fruits which, lead, which teachers bring. And I think that's what this church in Thyatira is neglecting. As they tolerate the teachings of a teacher who provides dead fruit and false ends. In today's day and age, we can see how teachings, which aren't even based in Scripture, lead to loss, lead to a loss of the sight of the very God who has saved us. For the Israelites in the days of Jezebel, the temptation to worship the storm God would have sounded really good for an agrarian society. For the city of Thyatira to worship the gods of guilds, of manufacturings, would have been a tempting thing. Today's day and age, I think the worship of the self, the idol of ourselves and our own wills and our own truth is a very, very present one. And yet to each of these, God says the same thing. Jesus says, only hold fast what you have until I'm. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. Who keeps my works until the end. The response to any idolatry is always the true God who will consume it. If we look to Christ, who is greater than any idol could ever be, who keeps my works. You know, I had an old pastor who used to say, and he loved this saying, he'd say, we are saved by good works, but not our own. We are saved by Christ's good works. Now, once we receive forgiveness because God has loved us and bought us with Christ's blood, then all we have to do is hold on to that. And in the face of every idol, that stands way above. And that's where I want to end this sermon because what's amazing is the text even points for this. The last verse which he says to the, the, the church Aside from the one which is he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, which every church has said. The last verse he says is, and I will give him the morning star. It's a weird little saying, but it's, it's shown up and it shows up several times in Scripture. And if we follow the, the line, it's, it's a really cool promise. And I will give him the morning star. You know, the first time we see it is in Numbers where the prophet Balaam says this, I see him now, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And then Second Peter, verse 19, which Pastor Patrick even mentioned earlier in this service, it shows up again. 
I'll read the whole text, even though I was going to just reference the, the start of it. It says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp in the dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. The morning star rises in your hearts. That's an exciting promise. And yet, verse 22, which will, or chapter 22, which will be our text next week, is the last place in Scripture, obviously, that it's mentioned. And this is where it's mentioned in Revelation 22, this promise to a church who will hold fast to Christ. Revelation 22:16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Isn't that an amazing promise? Jesus will give to the church of Thyatira the morning star, which is himself. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning, gathered together as your church. Lord, you know each of us, and you see into our, our very hearts, the very depth of our being. Jesus, you know intimately our every struggle. Lord, you know our temptations and the idols which so often draw us away from you. And Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes that we might see every idol for the fallacy and the falsity that it is. God, we ask that you would give us eyes that would see your truth and your beauty as the only one that's worthy of all honor and worship and praise and wonder and majesty. And Lord, that you would more and more continue the work which you began in our hearts, that we would more and more have you fill our being. In Jesus' name, amen.